The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time, she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success, and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about conflict analysis, and I have this wonderful book right here called Conflict Analysis, Understanding Causes, Unlocking Solutions by Matthew Levinger, and he's a professor that I'm going to tell you about. But, you know, it is so important. I remember when I was studying in you know, undergrad and even in law school, we really weren't analyzing conflict like they are now. And I think that is just really wonderful for under, for us to really understand the nature of conflict so that we can address it and resolve it. So let me tell you about this wonderful professor who happens to be the director of National Security Studies Program, and he's a visiting professor of international affairs at George Washington University in beautiful D.C. So Matthew is a visiting professor of international affairs and director of the National Studies Program at the Elliott School of International Affairs. Among his previous positions, he was a senior program officer at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He was founding director of the Academy for Genocide Prevention at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, which is a fabulous museum if you ever get a chance to go. And a, and a William C. Foster Fellow at the U.S. Department of State, where he worked to improve U.S. government strategies for preventing mass atrocities. I could tell you a lot more about him, but he is the author of this book, Conflict Analysis, Understanding Causes, Unlocking Solutions, and Enlightened Nationalism, The Transformation of Prussian Political Culture. He, um, he also is the co-author with Charles Brunig of the Revolutionary Era, 1789 to 1850. So he is also a history professor in, we're just thrilled that he's joining us from the East Coast. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to talk with you today, Murray. So let's talk about what, what is conflict in al- analysis and, and why is it so important? Well, conflict analysis is nothing more than a systematic inquiry into the causes and the potential future trajectory of of conflict. And it can apply either to large-scale social conflicts or political conflicts, or even to small-scale personal conflicts. 
The point of the book is to provide people with a series of very simple and straightforward tools that will enable them to understand uh, what is driving the conflicts both in their in their own lives, but primarily in the case of this book, looking at large-scale international uh, or regional conflicts, uh, and to find potential points of entry that might allow for uh, for better resolution. Well, it's so important. We look all over the world in the Middle East and Africa. We see all these horrible things happening in the world, and we don't want to have another world war. And, you know, it's it's so important to really analyze this. So what are the trends in global conflict since the end of the Cold War? Well, interestingly enough, I, I would have to say that we, we really don't know. Uh, there are some statistics that are very uh, encouraging, uh, namely that the total number of wars uh, in the world has come down from, from the end of the Cold War. Uh, there was something around uh, 50 uh, or a, a few more than 50 conflicts a year uh, in uh, 1991, at the time that the Soviet Union disintegrated, and now, uh, as of 2006, uh, the, the figure had declined to about 30. So the total number of conflicts has come down, but the level of mortality is harder to judge, partly because uh, the nature of conflict has changed. Instead of having two large states, the Soviet Union and the United States, facing each other down and fighting proxy wars uh, in various regions of the world, uh, now the situation is much more decentralized with many, many different kinds of actors, and it's also become a much blurrier phenomena. So that, for example, the World Bank estimates that about 1.5 billion people around the world are living in regions that are affected by conflict or insecurity. And often this is not so much uh, interstate war or civil war, but uh, large-scale organized crime, uh, gang violence, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, So that some countries, such as Guatemala, which have um, formally moved from war to peace, uh, actually have higher homicide rates today than they did back in the early 1980s. Uh, And because conflict has become more decentralized and more complex, uh, it's very, very important to do a much better job of trying to figure out who and what is driving the conflict and where there might be opportunities for building peace. So so if we look at it that it's more decentralized, I mean, it comes down to individuals and groups, right? I mean, when That's you're talking right, yeah. about, you know, gang violence or you're talking about cartels or whatever you're talking about. So, you know, I mean, when you go, you talked about that this book really applies not only at the global level, but really at the individual level. So so what causes conflict? I mean, even even between uh, just individuals. I mean, is, does it start with us, with our own conflict with in, where are we? Where do we start this whole process of understanding the real nature of conflict? Uh, sometimes people want to find one single cause for conflict, but in in point of fact, almost all conflicts are multi-dimensional, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's something that we recognize from our own 
personal lives, that, that someone might rub us the wrong way at the same time that they're stealing our parking space. You know? right, right. Uh, so so there, may be, uh, there may be a struggle over a scarce resource, uh, like parking on a, on a, on a busy street, um, but there may also be a personality conflict that somebody's very rude while they're doing it. Right. Uh, in, in my book, I look at five different dimensions of conflict that we uh, often see uh, overlapping uh, and often reinforcing each other in international conflicts. Uh, so I focus on the strategic dimension, which has to do with international security issues and, and struggles for uh, power on, a, on an international scale. Uh, I also look at the political dimensions, which, has to do, which have to do with the struggles for power within a given state at the national or subnational level. Uh, and then also socioeconomic factors, because often conflict is driven by the struggle over uh, scarce resources uh, and uh, the control of, uh, of institutions. And, and this would particularly be true, for example, in countries that have um, lots of natural resources like oil or diamonds or uh, other, other such things, um, and, and high levels of corruption. So if you have um, a country where to get rich you need to control the state, then that exacerbates uh, the, the causes of conflict because it makes the control of the state a much more valuable prize. But in addition, conflicts about psychology, uh, right. not only individual perceptions of each other, but also uh, group perceptions, uh, mutual perceptions. So, for example, when one side starts to dehumanize the other, such as in Rwanda in 1994, when the, the aggressors were calling the victim groups um, uh, cockroaches, mm. um, or, uh, and, and then finally cultural factors, uh, struggles over identity like religion or national identity or historical grievances. So, so often all of these uh, factors come together uh, in order to reinforce the sense of division and the level of, uh, the level of strife between multiple competing factions. So if you look at a lot of that, a lot of it has to do with fear, doesn't it? Like if there's natural resources that if, if we're fighting over water, you know, who's going to have the water or whatever, the, whatever it is, or the oil, a, a lot of it may be fear of, of these lack of resources or fear of the other party when you demonize them. I know I just uh, was in Chicago recently and I had this Palestinian guy who was my taxi driver and he was talking about how um, he lived in Israel and he loved his neighbors, but he hated the government and the governments were fighting, but his neighbors were wonderful. <laughs> and um, he said that I had no problems with the Israelis. I only had the problem with the government. So I, you know, it was just, you know, this, this, this dehumanizing or not understanding each other. You know, I said to him, so at the, at the one-to-one -one level, you had a really good relationship with your neighbors. He said, yeah, they were great. We'd, have barbecues together and we do things together, but um, but there's that you know the demonizing of somebody is is that what happens often? Yes, and you you make an excellent point, Mari. That that uh, fear and um, what we might consider material causes of conflict often go together. So that on the psychological side, you have the fear, but then that fear focuses on something that's a very real material conflict over control of water or uh, scarce 
food or um, the the fear of one's own group being uh, victimized by government violence or by militia violence. So that's why in, in my book I place a lot of emphasis on analyzing the stories that competing sides tell about conflict. And, right. and this is a, um, I, I include a chapter on what I call narrative analysis. And part of the uh, method of mer- narrative analysis is to try to develop an empathetic understanding of how different sides see the same conflict. And it's often very, very different. Yes. Uh, this doesn't mean you have to sympathize with the point of view of these um, competing factions. Some of them are very unsympathetic. But unless you can grasp how they see the world, it's very, very difficult to enter into any kind of productive conflict settlement um, um, approach. Yeah, you have, as one in one of the subchapters, you have listening as a peace-building technique. And that is probably the most important thing that we have to learn as mediators. That's, I mean, there's, you know, the power of effective listening. I mean, we have to listen. We may not, you know, I mean, obviously we're not there to agree if we're a mediator, but, um, but we have to listen to understand. And once we understand and help everybody else to understand, then we can start thinking of solutions. What are the, what are the, what are the things behind the, the positions? What are the real interests and the concerns that are behind the interests that we often don't know when we demonize someone else? someone else, right? That's right. And and um, the principle of interest-based no- negotiation, which I'm sure is a core part of your own practice, right. uh, has to do with moving beneath the the spoken word. You know, our position is this is our territory and we need it. And the other side says, no, it's our tor- territory and we need it. Um, but it may be that one side needs the territory for reasons of historical dignity, and the other side needs it for reasons of military security. And uh, and, uh, so this, in fact, was the case with the Camp David negotiations back in the 1970s, where Israel needed physical security and Egypt needed historical dignity. And so it became possible to work out a settlement where Egypt got the territory and had its dignity restored, but Israel got a um, demilitarized zone uh, in the Sinai uh, Desert, which was monitored by a multinational observer group. So, so uh, that's by listening, you yes. can sometimes identify opportunities for uh, for working together where it would appear that there's no common ground. But even more profoundly, one of people's core human needs, uh, I'd go so far as to say this is almost a universal human need, is the need for dignity yes. and, and recognition. And respect. And, and respect. And respect. And, yeah. and the, the very act of listening to someone and taking seriously what they say, whether or not you agree with it, right. uh, is very, very important uh, in finding openings uh, that will allow us to build on our common humanity as opposed to denying the humanity of, uh, of our opponent. Yeah, and you know when you were talking about the different needs, it's like that, you know. In getting to yes, I I studied with uh, Roger Fisher and Bill Urey, who wrote the book Getting to Yes, and you know they gave the the simple example that everybody can understand of the orange. You know these two kids are fighting over the orange, 
And I want, and you know, cutting the orange in half would not resolve it because in, in essence, the little girl wanted the, the orange. She just wanted the, the skin of the orange to make her art project. And the little boy just wanted the inside to eat it. So, you know, it's once you really understand the underlying needs, then everybody can get the, what they need, you know? And so that's what you brought up about that and, and Camp David. And it seems to me that we, we aren't there. You know, it's funny. I was talking with um, a couple of mediators, international mediators, and they told me that diplomats really don't have training to the extent that mediators do in, in this kind of interest-based negotiation and effective listening. Has that been your experience too? I think it's true that, uh, that unfortunately, uh, diplomats get very little professional training in uh, mediation and negotiation skills. Um, American diplomats get very good language training, uh, and they get some nuts and bolts training about how to do their jobs. But uh, until now, there's been little systematic emphasis on developing these skills for uh, conflict analysis, um, mediation, negotiation, and, and so forth. And that's actually part of the objective of the program that I now direct, which is an executive education program called the National Security Studies Program at George Washington University where we bring together uh, senior-level uh, military officials, colonels, and, and, and general officers, uh, together with civilian officials from the U.S. and other countries, uh, and even people from outside of government, uh, in order to enhance their skills in understanding uh, um, international conflict and, and making America and, and, its, uh, and its partners uh, more secure in the world, by finding more cost-effective and collaborative approaches to uh, to uh, resolving their their conflicts. Yeah, I think it's so wonderful that you're teaching this. I, you know, years ago when I was in college, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago, but they didn't have that, and I would have loved to take something like that. And now I belong to the Association for Conflict Resolution, and and you know they had at the exhibit hall the last one I went to. So many universities now are having actual programs in conflict analysis and conflict resolution and doing all this research. I think it's just fascinating and really wonderful. That's why I was so excited to get you on my show. So thank well, you. It's a pleasure to be talking <laughs> with you. So, you know, in your first chapter, you compare the results of the UN missions um, to the two neighboring countries in Central Africa, the Rwanda, which you were talking about just a few minutes ago, and Burundi back in 1993 and 94. So they had um, very different uh, results. Can you share with us a little bit about that, why that happened? Well, this is a, an illustration that I use early in my book to demonstrate the, the power of, or the potential power of good conflict analysis. Uh, uh, one of the great tragedies of the 20th century was the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, yeah. when about 800,000 people, primarily uh, members of the minority Tutsi um, uh, ethnic group, were massacred by uh, members of the majority Hutu ethnic group. Right. And uh, this uh, conflict um, pretty much was a, a legacy of um, of the colonial period when the Germans and especially the Belgian colonists 
uh, divided, used, used the divide and conquer strategy, which put the Tutsis in the leadership positions and the Hutu in the subordinate positions. Uh, and so that at independence, there was, there was a very high level of conflict uh, between Hutus and Tutsis because the Hutus, when they were trying to achieve Rwandan independence, um, uh, saw the Tutsis as much as the enemy as as, as the Belgian colonists. But mm-hmm. in any event, um, this all spilled over into into this um, horrific event in in uh, 1994. Uh, and but across the border, um, the the country of Burundi had a very similar composition with a majority Hutu population and a minority. Uh, Tutsi population, uh, and and uh, Burundi actually experienced um, a, a conflagration uh, about six months before the outbreak of the Rwandan genocide, in which about fifty thousand people, both Hutus and Tutsis, mm-hmm. uh, were killed. Yeah. Um, and so, after that catastrophe in Burundi, uh, a UN mediator or, or UN uh, special representative of the UN Secretary General by the name of Amadou Ould Abdallah, was sent in to try to stabilize the situation. Uh, and he was in Burundi at the time that, uh, that um, the Rwandan genocide began as mm-hmm. a result of a plane. It was triggered by a plane crash in which both the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi were killed. Wow. Um, but the country of Rwanda, which had over 2500 un peacekeepers in the country immediately exploded into the into the genocide mm. and the un peacekeepers were impotent they could not stop it mm. uh, whereas in burundi because Wild Abdallah had done such a very good job of understanding the different factions of making key alliances of building his own credibility the instant that he heard that the president's plane had been shot down, he went out to all of his military contacts, his political contacts, the, uh, the, the various uh, formal and informal groups, and they all went together to the radio station and said, uh, we are secure, there is no threat, uh, don't, uh, don't, be, go out in the streets, don't commit violence. And, mm-hmm. and because he was able to forge this coalition of influential leaders, they were able to stop the violence in its tracks. And so even though Burundi later on had, had very serious uh, civil, um, civil violence, uh, uh, at that time it remained peaceful throughout the Rwandan genocide. Yeah, a great example of good collaboration and, and just really working together and uh, that's, it's amazing. And that's, that, you know, it seems to me we need to have those kind of leaders. He obviously was a great negotiator. That's <laughs> he right. could yes, negotiate he with everybody, right? And bring yeah. them all together. Amazing. You know, you also stress in your book, and I, I love this book, Conflict Analysis, Understanding Causes and Unlocking Solutions. You also seem to stress the importance of, an, of assessment frameworks so that you have tools for analyzing conflict. So why don't you explain to us a little bit about um, how you do these conflict uh, assessments and and the frameworks? Well, um, 
A conflict assessment framework is a qualitative uh, analytical tool. Uh, I talk about some quantitative risk assessment tools for trying to predict when, uh, when there may be conflict. Um, but um, the conflict assessment tools uh, are, are qualitative tools for trying to develop a holistic understanding of the factors that are driving a conflict. And What's typically um, uh, distinctive about about using a conflict assessment framework is that it's usually done in a collaborative workshop setting, uh, and or or at least through some kind of collaborative deliberative, deliberative process involving staff from one organization and ideally from multiple stakeholder organizations, uh, including in many cases uh, local uh, me- members of the local community. Um, so the purpose of a conflict assessment. Is is to get a holistic view of what's going on, but also to develop a shared vocabulary, a shared language mm-hmm. for understanding um, the terms of the conflict. And so that when you come out of a conflict assessment exercise, um, the, the objective is not necessarily to agree about everything, but to at least have a common um, lexicon for discussing what's going on. Uh, and so we, when we do a conflict assessment, what we're focusing on is a series of discrete questions. Um, for example, what are the dividers and the connectors in a given uh, community or between two communities? And, and a divider is simply a potential source of polarization, um, a, a resource that people might fight over, for example. So, um, so you go to the leaders, you go to the government leaders, you go to the people who are the leaders of the gangs or whomever. Is that what you do to, to get... The, the input? Well, ideally you do, but, um, but uh, more often these assessments are done by external actors, by, by the U.S. government or the U.S. Um, uh, State Department or U.S. Agency for International Development or the World Bank or um, uh, the U.N. Uh, Development Program. So there, there are a variety of agencies that have these, these assessment processes as part of their decision-making hmm. um, processes. But the better ones do exactly what you're saying, namely bring people from the community in and do a really good job of listening to what the local concerns are. Because the point is to get as close as possible to the ground and really understand the local dynamics as opposed to just imposing a, an abstract vision from outside on, on that local situation. Right. I mean, it seems to me if you just have people who are foreigners come in and make an assessment, they make certain assumptions that they really don't know without testing those assumptions. That's right. They make assumptions that, that may not be valid, and even right. worse, <laughs> right. you know, they may, they may take over, they may say, well, uh, we're going to take over the government's analysis uh, mm-hmm. because the government's analysis is correct and the uh, um, insurgency's analysis is wrong. <laughs> you know, and so then obviously the insurgents assume that you're allied with the government or vice versa, you know. And so, so again, you, you're, you're not trying to... Uh, come up with one objective explanation, but you're trying to see how the different sides perceive the the factors that divide them, how they perceive the factors that connect them, uh, that are potential sources for peace building. And then who are the actors? You know, uh, who are the leaders? Who are the key constituencies that the leaders are trying to appeal to? Uh, and and then finally putting it together, what I call drivers of conflict and drivers of peace. Yeah. So a, a, a driver of conflict 
conflict is really a, it's a dynamic by which a leader attempts to use a divider to mobilize constituents um, in order to exacerbate the conflict. Right, and then, and then they have power, right? Yeah, in other words, you may, somebody like Slobodan Milosevic in, in Serbia, right, um, right. In, and, you know, in, in the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, um, he had come up as a good, um, com- very rigid communist official um, in the la- later years of the Cold War. And then as the, uh, as the Cold War wound down, it was harder and harder to mobilize your followers by, by using communist rhetoric. So he needed right. something new. So he said, oh, well, um, we have historically been oppressed by the Albanians who have stolen our territory in Kosovo and so forth and so on. So he just seamlessly moved from being a communist demagogue to being a nationalist demagogue. So he was manipulating these dividers uh, in order to uh, whip up support and maintain his control on power. Uh, but, but by doing so, he put into, play, put into motion an extremely destructive um, um, political dynamic that, that uh, exacerbated um, the, the uh, level of violence uh, to an extreme level. Matthew, that is, I know, it's so wonderful. Uh, we're, we're really out of time, but could you summarize the message of your book in just one sentence and then we have to go? Okay, I'll do one better than that. I'll, I'll do it in one word. Um, <laughs> Conflict analysis uh, involves, uh, if I have to summarize conflict analysis in one word, it's listen. I love Uh, it. That's the same thing I would say in resolving any conflict, even in mediation when I'm in it with a small group or a large group. You are wonderful. I hope we get to have you back again. This is a wonderful book, Conflict Analysis, Understanding Causes, Unlocking Solutions, and you are going to be a great Leader for Peacemaking. So thank you very much for joining us, Matthew. Thank you very much, Mari. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Okay, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com where you can see our upcoming guests, look at, um, our, listen to archived interviews, see URLs, and join us and write all, all sorts of emails and let us know what you want to learn about, and we want to learn with you. Thank you. Bye. Expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.